It's my uh, privilege to open up the scriptures to us today, and I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. As we do, as we think about this, as uh, we're Pauline, a pastoral epistle, as we think about Paul's writing to Timothy, I think it's always helpful to think of yourself uh, being Timothy, if you would. And this instruction coming to kind of set in context, in one sense I can say, we're all going to find ourselves in ministry, you're training for ministry, we're in ministry, in a context where we're going to be really ministering in that sense between the living and the dead. We are in the midst of that kind of ministry, holding forth truth that is life-giving truth, but it's also a truth that people will identify with without actually holding. They identify for a lot of reasons. It can be little cultural reasons. It can be uh, they just want an escape. I mean, there's a lot of different ways people come at the, the gospel. And Paul is dealing with this reality in, in 1 Timothy in ways even in the structure of the very book. I mean, from the get-go, Timothy is being said, hey, Paul's going on. You're staying here. And by the way, there's some trouble. There's some false teaching. You're going to have to address it. We come not only to false teaching, but there's issues in worship and gender issues and all of that going on. We don't see any of that in the church today. We all got it straight, right? We haven't fought about worship in years or gender role. Um, these things are still going on in the church. In fact, I, I heard today, you know, great theologian Andy Stanley is praising gay Christians. You know, that actually is an oxymoron. No such thing. That's what Paul would say. He says, such were some of you, not are. Such were. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. We live in a day of confusion, cultural confusion, gender confusion, worship confusion. Guess what? That's not new. And Paul begins to address the issue, and he comes right into a whole chapter on spiritual leaders. You're here in seminary. Either you are spiritual leaders or you're training to be them. You're part of God's solution to the problem. That if we're going to address false teaching, we're going to actually stand between the living and the dead, hold the gospel forth with integrity, not compromise it for the sake of the approval of men, you have a key function in all of this. And thus he lays out biblical qualifications for being spiritual leaders. And we come off that into the chapter 4 where we see there's a, an explicit warning. There are people who you know who identify with the faith today who one time who will deny it. I don't know any seminarian who can't testify to that. I wish I could tell you all the guys I went to seminary today were serving the Lord, standing on the gospel. That would not be true. And they had a life of that many years under sound preaching, under good teaching, and yet they abandoned the faith. Your faith will be tested for if it's real. God is under no delusion here, who is his and who is not. False professions will get exposed. There is an expressed warning here, and that warning then is given by Paul that some are going to turn away, and you see the various different ways uh, that ministries get turned, people turned from, and uh, these these false traditions of men, but Paul names some of them here at the start of chapter 4. And, and Brian, Dr. Han, excuse me, did a wonderful job on preaching on those. And I wasn't here to hear uh, Dr. Johnson last week. But he begins really unpacking in the solution, right? So the solution for Timothy, how are you going to respond? There's danger. It's real. There's people you know that you minister alongside who will turn away. 
So how are you going to address that and really sets this command to train ourselves for godliness? And that's a central command in this section. So training yourself for godliness and reminding us of a promise, which we'll see that we're to be an example in faith. So part of faith is actually you believe the promise. Guess what? Godliness is more valuable than gold. Godliness is more valuable than position. Godliness is more valuable than substitute all the things culture wants to offer you for your pleasure, your satisfaction, for the thing, the purpose, the direction of your life, the energy, uh, what you're really exercising yourself for. Godliness has more value than that. Do you believe that? And that is the challenge that he centers in there. And coming to the section we're in, he is giving responsibilities. In fact, I laugh a little bit because I kind of go, yeah, this text fits my personality, so because <laughs> it's a series of commands. It's just boom, boom, boom. Here you go. Uh, and he really comes at it with that series of commands. And it's how do we lead God's people in the pursuit of godliness? That's how I would see the answer in this section. So there's a danger followed out by part of coming to Timothy and giving him a direction to go because he's got to lead the church to protect the church and himself and his hearers in light of this danger. And then he gives a series of imperatives. So here's what it means for you to lead God's people in the pursuit of godliness. And so these are imperatives given to spiritual leadership, given to Timothy, and for us as uh, as we seek to serve in God's church and lead God's people in the pursuit of godliness. And so that's how I see that functioning. And we're going to walk through these imperatives and their commands given. And he starts right off and really using, and thankful for our, for our chaplains and their service in the military. I grew up as a military brat, a kid, uh, and was really even was going to go into the Coast Guard. But my eyesight, I had an appointment to the Coast Guard Academy, and my eyesight didn't let me pass. So, uh, But I so appreciate the military. And, and, and really, I, I say all that because I genuinely do. I grew up in a military family, so I love appreciate the men who serve. And I think it's a wonderful mission field and tremendous opportunities to connect ministry in so many different ways uh, from being in the, you know, I'll let them talk about that. Um, but here's really military words used in this text, command and teach. It is with that kind of authority, command and teach. And this kind of goes a little contrary to some of our current trends, preaching-wise and everything. Guys, listen, God's called you to preach. He hasn't called you to come up and be a spiritual guidance counselor. It's not your calling. Your calling isn't to say, here's some recommendations about maybe how you're going to live a better life. He actually has called you to be a herald to say, thus say the Lord. Command and teach these things. And he's pointing right backwards into the text uh, that that, that he's given us. Command and teach, folks. Be careful. There's so many false ideologies out there. You better know the truth and not know about it. It actually has to control the way you live or you actually haven't known it. And he's, he's, he's really back. This command and teach, and you could go right back through the verses you've seen in this chapter, these things you need to prescribe to God's people. Warn them with this military type of, this is what God has said. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't back down from actually what God has called you to do as a spiritual leader and to teach them what it actually means to pursue godliness. The godliness has great value. It's not that you have a preference. It's actually a life direction, a pursuit. He's going to go to the very reality that, Timothy, godliness demands more than being able to affirm doctrine or write a doctrinal statement. 
Godly means, means you actually have a life that reflects the character of God. That is the pursuit. That actually is the fruit of a genuine pursuit. You command and teach these things. And then he's going to move on and actually point the example uh, that Timothy must give. And so he's pointing us to what must be done, how it must be done, because it really then leads in leading the pursuit of godliness. Sorry, I went the wrong way. This clicker goes. I did this, I think, last time I preached too. To me, you know, up is go forward and ups go backwards. So anyway, the up-down button's a little backwards to me. But one of the questions, I'll just stop here. So just application-wise, how do we do this? And I think, you know, Hebrews talks about, obviously, context of local church. I, I don't think we're robbing the scripture to say in a seminary setting, there's a level of which we ought to be doing this as well. You are in seminary together, and part of seminary life is growing together with fellow seminarians that you're building relationship with, that actually you should be able to speak truth into one another's life. And I made the statement, I don't know any seminarian who's gone to seminary who's been in ministry for probably more, for 15 to 20 years that do, does not know men they went to school with who no longer hold the faith. So as you're in class, look around. There's someone struggling. And maybe not academically, but there is someone struggling to live out the truths they're learning. Sad if they can actually make it through seminary without that actually being seen. We're called on in the context of local church life to actually consider, to give consideration. And I know your life's, I mean, seminary's busy, got demands, you're working, you're going to school, got tests, there's all these mean professors that just make too many high demands, and you got to come see us about those, and that's great, we love talking with you, but just remember this, there are people around you you're supposed to be considering, and considering how your life impacts theirs for their spiritual good. How do you stir them, simulate them to love and good works? How do we do that with one another? It's the life of the local church, but it is also meant to be life of believers with one another. And he commands, and the second responsibility is to set an example. And really coming to this issue, you command and teach, here's that simple reality. Are you a credible example of what you say? It is not enough to be able to just say, here's what the Bible says. Your life actually is meant to exemplify it. That this is teaching that is unto sound doctrine. Well, sound teaching produces a sound life. A life that exemplifies Christ. A life that is unreally, in a sense, not worthy of blame. It's not going to be perfect because we're still sinners. But what it does mean is when I'm confronted for sin, as God shows me my sin, I'm going to respond as a believer with repentance and faith. And so we are to let, as he says, let no one despise your youth, Timothy but set the believers an example. And so Timothy, you know, how young he was is always debated. I think the big issue is, is you're going to command and teach. There's always going to be somebody who isn't going to like it. I mean, there's always going to be somebody in the church doesn't like your application. Somebody in the church is going to tell you overstepped your reach there. Somebody is going to, and, and it's going to be the case, and somebody's going to challenge what you've said, as you say, thus saith the Lord, because they don't really want to conform. So what is the answer? And Paul's answer is that, Timothy, it is not enough just to teach it and preach it. Your life actually needs to exemplify it. 
that what gives credibility to the message that is irreproachable is a life that actually exemplifies the truth you're proclaiming. So, Timothy, you must exemplify it. And then he, he goes down a list, and he's really your speech, your conduct, and love, and faith, and purity. And we could walk through those. I mean, from speech, the kind of speech we're to put off, and, and this just gets in that the words we're speaking is always a reflection of what God, what is going on in our hearts. I mean, I, we've probably, most of us have said at times, we've said something, and then we said, well, I didn't think before I spoke. You know that is actually not possible, right? Your brain engaged, those words came out. What you really mean by that is I didn't think about the implications of what I said before I said it. Because you certainly thought those words before they came out of your mouth. And so we can speak unwholesome words. We can speak things that are not really true. And Paul is pressing in and he's reminding us that our speech is a reflection of what's going on in our heart and the condition of our heart. So watch what's coming out of our mouth because it is reflecting to us something that God is seeing. I hope we really do learn to pray as David taught us, Lord, show me even my secret faults, secret to me, not to God. And God's going to use your speech to do it, and, th- and you do get to do that in the context of other people who are hearing you. And so our speech needs to be then turned to truth and that which is good, giving grace, putting on the kind of speech that actually reflects Christ in, in, our, both li- in our life. But it doesn't stay with speech, it moves to conduct. And here's the reality, learning truth is learned when your life actually exemplifies it. I am to grow in obedience. I am to grow in Christ-likeness. In fact, that's what you're going to see even as he continues to lay it out. So your love, so after conduct, he's going to get drilling into the issues of love. And that love being just, our love for God being preeminent, then that results in love for others that is sacrificial like Christ's love. And we can love that way because we're loved by God. This is the kind of life you're to live in the context of a church where people actually know you. And one of the challenges that we have in the culture we live is, that, and even in seminary life, we come in together, we go out, we don't necessarily live life in community, we don't see each other that much. So how do we do this becomes a challenge. But here's the thing. No matter the cultural context in which you live, the challenges will always be there, but the responsibility doesn't change. The responsibility for spiritual leaders, if we're going to protect people from apostasy and false doctrine and keep it out of the church, is that our lives have to reflect truth in a very knowable way. Because an example that no one follows is not helpful. An example no one sees isn't really an example. To set an example for the believer means your life is life on life with people. And they see the veracity of your faith lived out by the words you're speaking, by how you conduct your life, how you treat other people. Is your love for Christ genuine will be revealed in that walk. And it must be a walk that then can be followed, even as Paul could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me, follow those who follow the example set. So be an example, and your life must commend the gospel and the truth of the gospel to those who you are leading and protecting from ungodliness, from apostasy. And it's a life of, obviously, faith. It's a life of 
purity in the, our cultural context, we certainly need that reminder. Um, in faith, uh, Romans chapter 14, when Paul says, but whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's one of those I wrestled with for a long time and just working through, and I forget, I heard some really good exposition on Romans 14, and what I, as I believe I understand the text more fully today, whatsoever is not of faith, well, what does that mean? I've heard a lot of people say, well, I, you know, I have peace about it. What does that mean? Uh, I feel good about it? You know, I feel good about a lot of bad things. I love Bluebell ice cream. It does not love me. Um, you know, I can feel good about bad things, things that are not good for me. So when we're dealing with what sort of not of faith is sin, here's the wrestling point that God really has you at. If you don't honestly believe what you're about to do pleases God, don't do it. Because faith never does anything that displeases God. You never in faith disobey God. There's not one time you ever sinned and you did that by faith. Faith actually wrestles with, because we trust God, we trust his promises, we're in submission to God's authority, we walk as children of the light, not of the darkness anymore. That means we want to discern what actually pleases God, and if I'm not sure what I'm doing pleases God, I should not be doing it. Because if it is not from faith, with confidence I'm pleasing God, it is sin. That's what Paul's saying. So be an example of the believer in how you live the life of faith. He is not just talking about the conduct of, I mean, the content of faith here. He's not just saying preach the gospel right. He's saying live it. Live it. Be an example of how the gospel is lived out and be that example and then the purity of that. I mean, we could go on all kinds of side events here in terms of illustrating the need, but our culture needs to see a people who genuinely love God and love other people, and can love other people without any form of perversion, without any form of manipulation, without any form of trying to conjole people to get what we want as a spiritual leader. We actually love them for their good. And we invest in them for their spiritual good. And God want, is calling us to that kind of purity and that kind of purity uh, in a culture. And it's not like our culture is newly arrived at some perverted level. There were plenty of perversions in the New Testament and Corinth and all these other cities that the the believers were standing apart from with the purity of life. Would to God that, you know, I mean, how much cultural Christianity is there in society? We have no idea. I mean, it's horrifying when stats come out and tell, suggest to us that believers are as hooked to pornography as unbelievers. I hope I'm not talking to anybody in this room, but I probably am. There's probably someone in this room that you view pornography and you're trying to justify it on some level and trying to make it fit. And I can just tell you, it is unjustifiable. It will destroy you. It may reveal that you're an unbeliever. This is a real issue. Purity of heart. You cannot love God and love your sin. It's not going to work. And the moment you're saying you're loving God while you're still loving your sin, stop lying to yourself. Just remember, the devil is a better deceiver than you are a believer. You're more easily deceived than you've ever believed. That's why these directions are given in the context of, remember, 
The Spirit is testifying expressly. Some are going to depart from the faith. There will be a challenge. There is going to be exposure. And if you really believe that, the response is to train yourself for the purpose of living a godly life. A life that honors God in all of these aspects. In language, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And then he comes to the responsibility of three, the third real command there found in verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and, and teaching. Timothy, be devoted to this reality. All right, here's your challenge. All the seminary students, listen. Your devotion time with the Lord, time in the Word, better be beyond studying for class. Because if it doesn't go further than studying for class, you're going to get in ministry, and all you're going to study for is the next thing you're going to preach to somebody else. The next thing you're going to teach, counselors, you're going to help somebody with their problem? If you can't bring them to the Word, which is the only place the solution of their problem's coming from, then what do you have to offer? And if your life is not actually devoted to the Scriptures, maybe biblical counseling is not your calling. Because that is the point of biblical counseling, is it not? That our lives must be devoted to the Word and devoted to hearing the word, and to being under the word, obviously to teaching it, exhorting, being able to encourage. I mean, the exhortation is a two-sided word there. You exhort people when they're struggling. You encourage people to continue when they're, they're doing the right thing. And that should be the ongoing practice of the believer. But we should be able to do that with the word of God to one another. How do I give biblical exhortation? How do I give biblical encouragement? And I won't be able to do it unless I'm saturating my life with the Word. And he's calling for that full devotion, the constant feeding that must be essential. And then as you, you know, there's old sponge analogy. If all you do is soak it up and don't give it out, you're going to sour. You must engage, taking the truths God's giving you and engage. That's why we encourage you to be in local churches, to serve, to take positions, teach, get involved with children's, teach. Guys, you want to learn to, to I, when I first surrendered a call to preach, but I still remember Pastor Mike Harding was my pastor. Still, I love him to this day. I still call him my pastor, call him all the time. I mean, talked to him yesterday. So anyway, all of that to say, the, I surrendered a call to preach. He said, so God's called you to preach, huh? I said, yes, sir. He said, next week you start in children's church. Okay. So those poor kids. Anyway. But. One of the things he told me, and this is true, he said, you need to learn how to communicate God's truth to children. Because if you can learn how to communicate God's truth to children, you can communicate God's truth to adults. If you cannot communicate it to children, you probably won't be able to do it to adults. So please, do not sink children's churches beneath you. Please don't look down. Those are opportunities that ought to be redeemed. You ought to be excited. Anytime you have an opportunity to teach God's word, you should be excited and actually redeeming those opportunities. And I, I mean, I know it's, there's lots of people in Bible college around here. We have one of those here. There's lots of people maybe volunteering, but here's the thing. Seminarians, you ought to be leading the charge in local church teaching the word. If you're not leading the charge in local church teaching the word, then your absorption of what you're learning is going to be muted. Teach the word. 
be absorbed, devoted to the learning yourself and then teaching. And we see the fourth responsibility is don't neglect the gift you have given you by prophecy and the counsel of elders laying on hands. We could go all down line what the gift exactly is. I simply want to just stay here and just say, remember, you're not alone. This call to serve in a godly life, you haven't been called to just go do it alone. Go live a godly life. Yeah, great advice. But remember, if you're a believer here today, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and God has gifted you to serve. You are dependent on God, not you. That means you can serve God. If God's called you, you can serve Him. He's gifted you to do so. Don't neglect the fact God has gifted you. Use the gifts God's given in full dependence on the Spirit and engage and watch God work in your life to continue developing your gifts and abilities for the good of His body. Use the gifts. Be dependent on the Lord. And then dedicate yourself. Practice these things. Immerse. So if you didn't get it first, you know, so sometimes the commands just kind of stack, right? Devote yourself to the scripture. Why? For the purpose of growing in godliness. Devote yourself to the scripture. Why? So your life will be immersed in it. Practice them. Don't just preach them. Live out the reality of your faith and live it in a context where it actually can be observed. That means you have to have honest relationships with people in the body. Genuine discipleship is life on life, learning to follow a model of godliness that you actually see live it. So observe the life. Learn from one another. Do this in the context of the body of Christ. Do this in seminary. Learn, encourage, exhort one another. Live out these truths in, uh, in this context. That's what Paul's saying will protect the church. And Pisani says persist in this. You need to persevere. The more you grow in godliness, the more you can expect resistance. Growth always comes with resistance. The devil is going to resist. Paul has told us you're not going to, going to, to escape this life without actually experiencing persecution or some level of suffering that comes as a result of your pursuit of godliness. And then we're actually told to thank God when we actually suffer for the cause of the gospel or for godliness. So it takes the exercise, the spiritual exercise, if you will, of these truths in a persistent way. And that also is true with the gospel, with your community. Be persistent, ever vigilant. And that's how we protect one another. Ultimately, is what he's going to say. That's really the reason, right? Why do you need to do this? Persist in this? For so doing, you'll save both yourselves and your hearers. Obviously, we're not the source of salvation. So what is Paul simply saying? He's saying God's actually called you to a ministry that helps others persevere in the faith. Your ministry is that important to God. It is a means he has ordained for the perseverance of the saints. Your failure to engage is part of why the warning is there. Some are going to depart. Don't fail to be part of that God-given means for the perseverance of the saints. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your kindness, for the opportunity to look at your word today. I pray, Lord, these series of exhortations would be things we will dwell upon, that we'll take that honest consideration of the example that we are living. We're all examples, maybe good or bad, Certainly true in all of our life, there's things that are more commendable than others. Lord, we're all a work in progress. None of us have arrived spiritually. 
the Lord are continuing to pursue godliness should be evident. Even Paul would say that others would see your progress. Lord, it is a joy to see people growing in faith. It is a shame when we see those who've been most exposed to truth doing nothing with it. May that not be true of anyone here. And Lord, we have a such a privilege, such an opportunity to be students of your word. But Father, may we consider whether or not we rightly value that opportunity. Do we immerse ourselves in it? Are we truly devoted to it? Does it have the right priority in our life today? Do we see our living out of the realities of faith as a part of loving the brethren? Part of protecting the sheep? So Lord, help us to wrestle with our responsibilities to be spiritual leaders, to live out our calling by the gifting you've given through your spirit in the inner man. Lord, thank you that You've not left us alone with these responsibilities, that you are working in us and in those we minister to, both the willing and doing of your good pleasure. Lord, may we exercise, train ourselves for the purpose of a God-honoring life in every aspect, in every facet. May we praise you when you expose those things in our life through the people around us who know us and love us, the need to change because they don't yet model Christ. And we'll give you the glory if it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.